Yo. Hey, cheers, bud. Cheers, bud. How are you doing? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is nasty. I see you got some old English there. Oh, my God. It's disgusting. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's not as good as I remember. (laughs) No. No. Oh, my God. I haven't had a 40 in so long. Yeah. It's been, it's been a long, it's been a minute. Here's the deal. The deal listeners. Um, you might not know it from listening to the episodes, but generally, at least I, I don't know what Nick does on his own time, but I try to put in a lot of thought about the episode structure and what we're doing an episode about. I like, I try to do some reading, take some notes, you know, like find the music to listen to all that kind of shit. The last few weeks, months have been so hard. Lauren and I adopted a puppy off the street. It was the end of the semester. I had to write like a 30 page ass term paper. Things have been crazy. This episode is slightly less structured than the other ones. Um, I'm, it's like a summer vacation, start of summer kind of episode, like a hot Gustav summer, you know? Hot, and, hot Gustav <laughs> coming and, in live. Um, <laughs> and so um, we're going to, we were, when we were in college, Nick and I used to have like, I can't remember what day of the week it was. It was sophomore year. And for some reason we started drinking forties on like Monday night. It was like Monday night forties or something Mm. like that. Do you remember what day of the week it was? Monday sounds right. Yeah. I mean, you gotta have, you gotta drink on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I'm, so we're drinking forties tonight um, in honor of that time. I also tried to get some like a nip of Jack Daniels, but I couldn't find it. And I am f- sure as fuck not buying a whole bottle of Jack Daniels. That shit is so nasty. But that's what we used to drink back in the day. 40s and Jack Daniels. Yep. Um, we've, we've come a long way. So this episode is tentatively titled 40 by 40. And what we're going to do is we're just going to like around 20 each or so of our, <laughs> I told Nick our favorite things. And he asked music or not. And I said, I don't really care. So we'll see what he came up with. All of mine are, are generally music related. Um, and uh, I'm going to take a sip of this 40 each time we talk about a new subject. Thick. And um, you got anything, you got anything, Nick? You look great. Uh, You're clean shaven. I see all these boxes behind you. Oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got, I'm, I'm moving to Yonkers, you know, moving in to Yonkers and uh like actually the movie we have movers scheduled to come in like like um the first week of june so it's like coming up really fast so we gotta like pack shit up and everything um yeah is there anything you're particularly excited about moving to your new place yes no no oh shit okay so hang on okay let me back up max is implying that i was last time we were hanging out i was joking around about how Every time I mentioned my apart- my apartment that I just got in Yonkers, I was so excited that it has two spots for, oh, two parking spots, so we could have both of our cars. But actually, it turns out there's only there's only one spot. So now, so I'm your gonna, dream came true. I'm gonna kill myself now because because I can't park both my cars in um in front of my apartment. But no, that's okay. Actually, there's plenty of street parking, so it's no big deal, really. It's funny because you had that dream where you had to give up one of your spots. Yes, I had a dream and I think it was because there was like the I was like working at a school and the school needed to park their school bus in front of my apartment building. Makes a lot of sense. That was my dream. Yeah. And 
Yeah. If you can uh, answer this question in like five seconds or left less, was it your fault? You thought you had two spots. Did you just like misread something and saw a two instead of a one? Definitely my fault. Oh yeah. Always. <laughs> yeah. I'm just a schmuck and I don't know what anything, I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know what's going on, Max. All right. I gotta, I gotta be honest. But I, I'll, the other thing I wanted to say is that I'm so excited. Every time you post something about Franklin, I fucking love Franklin. I haven't even met this pup, but he seems oh. like the best pup in the He's really world. good. I'm so excited really about good. Franklin. Yeah, I can't wait for you to meet him. It's not going to feel real until other people start meeting him, you know? Like right now, he could just be a figment of my and Lauren's combined imagination or combined psychoses. He, yeah, yeah. He might not even be real. but He might not be real. Everyone's humoring me. <laughs> yeah yeah the pictures actually that you post on instagram <laughs> there's no dog in them and nobody has the heart nobody has the heart to tell you <laughs> it's just a picture of my yard <laughs> it's just the floor <laughs> without a dog in. yeah oh shit all right let's do um let's do let's do heads or tails to see who starts oh cool okay um you call it okay heads it is heads uh so i start I guess you could choose. I'll start. Fuck it. Why not? All right. Let me get my list up here. All right. So I also kept my list generally music themed. Yeah, pretty much everything has to do with music. So the first thing I have, number one, coming in with number one, coming in. Are these hot. in like a, are in in any ascending or descending order? Nope. Okay, cool. Number one, the first thing I wrote down is just whatever came to my mind, honestly. First thing is Meet the Mets, the theme song for the New York Mets. Mm -hmm. um, great theme song, you know. In in all of the world, in all of music and music history, one of your top 20 favorite things is Meet the Mets. Yeah, dude, so sick. <laughs> meet the Mets, greet the Mets. It's so good. <laughs> they still play uh, it at the games? Or is yeah, that like a of old thing? No, I that's know, why, of course. That's why I, yeah, why would you know? I, that's why I love it because they it was written in like the 60s or something. Um, you know, when the Mets were really bad, like before mm -hmm. they won their world, world series. It was just like their little fight song and it was just it's such like a little innocent song but super fun and they always yeah, no, no, Let me ask you another question. You said before they were bad. Um if memory serves, I don't follow baseball too much, but the Mets are still pretty bad. Oh yeah. Mets oh sorry. Mets are always bad. I yeah, I should amend that statement. They're terrible. <laughs> Okay, that's cool. Um, well, I guess on my list, the closest thing to that, and this also might be on on your list, so I'm gonna I'm gonna snipe it. Um, the music for Ocarina of Time. Oh, sick! Yeah. Um, Ocarina of Time, a legendary Ze Legend of Zelda video game, one of the best games of all time, and not just for like, I mean, I don't know, was it a revolutionary game? Yeah, dude, it was, it, it blew people away. It really did. Yeah, okay. Well, <clears throat> the gameplay is awesome. The storyline is awesome. It was like, the graphics were great for the time. But um, one of the things that's most amazing about it is the music and how the music helps tell the story of the game. And in fact, um, the analysis of video game music is, a, is like a burgeoning subfield of, in the field of music theory. And a lot of people write about the music for Ocarina of Time because it's like kind of operatic. It's kind of leitmotivic in the way that um, Wagner is like there's certain melodies for certain people and certain melodies recall certain emotions or certain plot points. 
Um, so just all in all, an awesome, awesome thing. Tacking on to this, there's an album called The Ocarina of Rhyme, where oh. someone took, um, yeah, it's a, I don't think it's like officially released anywhere. I think it's on YouTube if people are yeah. interested, Ocarina of Rhyme, and it's music that. from uh, Legend of Zelda with, with rap music on top. It's fucking it's awesome. So cool. <laughs> yeah. A really funny thing about the field of um, analyzing music, video game music, is um, like when you read papers, they're like, in order to do this, I had to sit down and play 100 hours of the Ocarina of Time. I'm like, damn, that's so sick. I am fucking want to study video game music. And then also like my teacher was talking about this and he was like, yeah, another um, like field with a lot of questions that's still being asked is the influence of psychedelic drugs on how we perceive music. And I was like, oh shit, I'll just study that. So I could be like, I had to take LSD a hundred times and listen to Listen to Mahler too a hundred times on acid. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Nice. All right. All right. My number two is um, the show we went to at the Crazy Donkey with ASOB and Streetlight Manifesto, where Max mm. um, jumped up on the stage and played So Let's Go Nowhere with ASOB. Maybe one of the best Scott shows we were ever at. That was pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. <coughs> Ugh. Ugh. oh my god the old english is so bad it's disgusting <laughs> it's i need so it it's so i need a pbr chaser or something um okay i've gotten a lot of heat in my life for liking jeff rosenstock from some of my friends who you know who may be benefactors of the show but were you there when natasha realized that uh jeff rosenstock was in asob was that oh yeah we yeah we were at we were at the brewery yeah, everyone loves ASOB. Everyone loves Jeff. Oh, and yeah. Streetlight. Jeff Can't be denied. No. Um, yeah. Cool. So that was like a specific concert experience? Yes. I have no, there's no like theme with yeah. my 20 lists. No, I'm, that's cool. I'm all over the place. I was just trying to think of like what I could, what I could do next. Um, okay. I'm going to give, I'm going to give a, a movie. Oh, cool. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, I used to play, for instance, a lot of ballet music. I worked at Boston Ballet School. And at when I was doing that, the movie Black Swan came out. Um, did you see, ever see that movie? Yeah. I loved that movie. I thought that movie was cool as shit. And all the dancers I knew hated it. And <laughs> that's generally how I feel like when Whiplash came out, that movie was like Oscar nominated and everyone fucking thought Whiplash was the best movie of all time. And I was just like, I, I can't, I think this movie's kind of dumb. Yeah, I think the, somehow that's what the mean drum teacher. Yeah. The mean drum teacher <laughs> that if you're like cl- too close to a subject that it's hard to enjoy like fictionalized, like dramatizations of that thing. Um, yeah, I kind of agree with that. So I generally don't like too many uh, movies about music, but there's one, that was made by um, a composer named Maurizio, Maurizio Kagel. I think he's um, an Argentinian German composer or, or something. Oh shit. I'm just realizing that means that probably means his grandparents are Nazis. Probably. Uh, oh no. Uh, oh, oh shit. shit. Anyways, he, he made this movie in 1970 to celebrate the bicentennial of Beethoven's birth. And it's uh-huh. really interesting. Um, like it's just a discussion about 
like the first half of the film is in first person perspective. Like you're supposed to be Beethoven waking up in 1970 and walking around Bonn in your hometown. And like, you see all these people listening to your music and all these posters about you and you go to your, the house where you're born and see it's a museum. And it's just kind of about like the reification of Beethoven and like what classical music means in the world today, what Beethoven means and how he's used and misused by like, um, like the Ode to Joy is the theme of the, um, uh, the European Union national anthem, but I'm sure like people in the Third Reich also championed Beethoven. So it's like about the uses and misuses of Beethoven. It's not exactly like a narrative film, um, but it's, I think, a really amazing movie. And it's like, yeah, anyways, that's called Ludwig von by Maurizio Kagel. It used to be on YouTube. Um, all, all of my things are on YouTube. If anyone wants to, <laughs> nice. wants to listen. But um, yeah, did I ever make you watch that? I don't think so, but we should watch it. If we do another movie episode, we should watch that one. Oh yeah, that would be good. That'd be fun. There's an amazing scene where there's one room in Beethoven's house. I don't know if this is actually the way it is in the museum, but in the movie, every surface is covered with sheet music. Like um, the slats on the back of the chair are covered with sheet music and like his desk is covered with sheet music. And the camera pans really slowly across it. And it's all snippets of Beethoven's music and different instruments are playing it just like the snippets that you can see on the screen. And it's a oh, really cool. interesting like aural tapestry of, yeah. And there's other things where like his music is played really poorly and out of tune. And I know we discussed this in the Beethoven episode, like, and actually Natasha pointed this out to me. I was freaking out about, did Beethoven ever hear his music performed as well as it's performed today? And she was like, dude, Beethoven's deaf. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> I, I totally forgot. But it probably sounded fucked up to him if he had like any sort of hearing capacity left. But anyways, yeah. that's it. He could feel He could feel it. He knew, he knew if it was good or bad. Well, yeah. All right. I'm, so I'm going in order of what I thought of when I made the list. Okay, so, cool. Which is fun because you just mentioned Ocarina of Time. My not my number three is a soundtrack from Breath of the Wild, and specifically, oh. the music when you go now. This I some of my list is very specific. The music when you go into hang on, what is it? Rito Village during the day, and there's this really cool clarinet part in the score, and then also the really epic trombone part in when you go to Goron City. It's like a blues. It's really fun. I fucking love that music. The, I think the Breath of the Wild, like that, uh, first of all, the game is amazing. And the, the music just like takes it like over the edge. It makes mm. it so good. We'll have to, we should try to find clips of those. Um... The clarinet part sounds like Copeland or something. It's so, it's so cool. Like really wide intervals and it's like really fucking sick. Um, but yeah, the music is so good in Breath of the Wild. Everything about that game is amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going now that I did. Um, I'm going to combine two, two here. Well, actually, okay. um, generally, I don't like movies about music, but movie soundtracks and scores is in such a different story. Totally different. Yeah. Two, two of my top movie soundtracks that I just like off the top of my head were There Will Be Blood, which was composed by Johnny Greenwood. Um, oh, yeah. From Radiohead, the guitarist yeah, from Radiohead, like guitarist, an yeah. amazing composer. And then um, Interstellar. Oh, um, yeah. By Hans Zimmer. So good. Um, Nick, let me ask you a question. 
if you could only watch movies that were scored by actually i know the i know your answer to this question but <laughs> if you could only watch movies scored by one composer which composer would it be um like a film composer yeah yeah like it like if you can only watch movies that have a score by that one film composer what what composer would it be probably john williams yeah john williams <laughs> and it's funny because that's my next fucking thing that i wrote down i'm mm. not i'm not going out of order i swear to god that's my number 4 i wrote down anything by john williams and also yeah. because he obviously is known for his like iconic film scores but he writes really cool concert music too he has two really epic violin concertos oh really yeah and one that just came out like a couple years ago that was premiered some uh, somewhere like in 2020 or 2019 or something my dude is 90 years old still writing violin concertos right yeah he doesn't have to he doesn't have to do anything my dude is john williams he, but he's like yeah. he's so good he's like the best composer right now i feel like just because he's he's so iconic but he's still just pumping out whatever he really wants you know that's pretty cool i wonder at what age and after what film like he could have stopped working for the rest of his life <laughs> probably like in the seventies or eighties, honestly, that dude is so prolific. Yeah. And that's a, he's a good example of how much music matters for a movie because the first star Wars movies that didn't have John Williams as a composer fucking were whack as shit. You yeah. know, like you could tell yeah. something is off with the music. Right. Um, and it, it frankly makes the, the viewing experience less. Uh, yeah. It's enjoyable. not as good. Yeah. Um, cool. Excuse me, bud. You are excused. What are your top three John Williams um, scores? Um, let's see. Oh, probably. Okay. Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Catch Me If You Can. Really good. Yeah. Catch me if you can. It's hard to deny. It's so good. And it's a sax concerto. Oh, Jurassic Park is also hard to deny. Wow. I would say good shit. in mine would also be, um, wait, did he do Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yes. Because that shit is also pretty wild. Yeah. Um, maybe I'd replace Catch Me If You Can with... Um, Third encounter, close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. Here's my top Hans Zimmer scores. Not that you asked, and that would have been my answer to the question: the only films by composers, by <laughs> scored by a single composer. Not that you asked, but it would be Hans Zimmer. My top three: Interstellar, obviously, because I already mentioned it. Dune, and um, oh, Dune. Um, maybe a Gladiator. <laughs> Wait, is that Hans Zimmer? <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know if I've ever really seen Gladiator. What the fuck? Like, are you are kidding you me? About, like Gladiator, like the movie with like Russell Crowe or something? Yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Oh my God, Nick, are you? F yeah, I don't, I, I, don't, I never fucked with it. I, I don't know. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Okay. Anyways, moving on. Um, speaking again of Interstellar. Um. When we play board games, we use, so like one of my favorite things is using music as 
background soundtrack specific for specific events. So like whenever we play board games, we listen to music and each board game has a specific soundtrack. So like when we play this game called terraforming Mars, we use the soundtrack for interstellar. When we play mm-hmm. a game called Gaia project, we use music from the Martian and that's all that's good. When we make pasta, we listen to like a specific Italian folk album. Um, but recently probably like the nerdiest and like, most loser thing I do is like, if I'm reading a fantasy novel or reading a sci-fi novel, I like listen to fan, like atmospheric fantasy and sci-fi music playlists on Spotify. And you know what? I love doing it. <laughs> that's I awesome. Shit. That's cool. I realized it's pretty lame, but you know, dude, that's not lame. It's lame. You're, Nick. you're not lame, Max. You're setting the mood, but like site specific background events, back music as background. I, I love that shit. That's a new thing. That's like the past three or four years. I never used to do that. Yeah. Well, that's cool. All right. What are we, what are we on here? What, um, that was, we were on eight. We just did eight. That was our eighth thing that we said. Oh yeah, sure. Your fourth. Now I'm moving on to my fifth, the ninth thing on our list. Yeah. We should have a, we should have a complete list breakdown on the Patreon page. Oh yeah, sure. With hyperlinks and everything. Okay. Number five coming in. I'm no, this is the fifth thing I wrote down is playing in drop D on the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't really think that needs any further explanation. It's just so fucking fun. Yeah. I mean, it might need some explanation for people who aren't guitarists or okay. I don't know. Maybe you don't have to explain it. You just tune the lowest string a one step lower and then all the chords are just one finger chords and you play <laughs> really fast. And really, like so fun. You got me in trouble um, with Slomka one time because like for whatever reason, my guitar, is it, hold on. First of all, is it drop D or dropped E? Drop D, drop D as in dog. D is in dog. Drop, drop D. D, not dropped E. No, I see where you're going with that, but it's the first one. Drop D, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, anyways. Like we were fucking around and um, like you and me and my guitar for whatever reason was in drop D. And um, I told Slomka, I wrote a new song for late night show and I had to retune my guitar and he thought I was doing it in drop D and he was like, I already hate it. I was just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Relax. It's not that serious. No, dude. Drop D is also like very sick. If you're not playing in drop D, I don't know what the fuck you're doing. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. Okay. Really quickly. I'm going to list two things right here under this. This this is also like the same sort of thing about um, movies, but novels that feature music. There are two Mm. that I really, really love. There are two of my favorite books of all time. One is The Unconsoled by Kazuo Ishiguro. And the other is Dr. Faustus by Thomas Mann. Um, The Unconsoled is about a pianist that arrives in like, some unnamed central European town and he's supposed to give a recital and he just gets sidetracked the whole time he's there. Like he needs to rehearse. He can't find time for rehearsal. He's supposed to like meet with like the venue owner or something. Can't meet him. But he like, he's late to the show. Can't find the, the show. And it's this like 500 page novel about a dude not being able to get where he's supposed to go or do the <laughs> things that he's supposed to do. And it's like, do you ever have like dreams, Nick, where, uh, I have these all the time where like I show up to a concert and there's a piece on the program I forgot to practice 
or like I forgot to practice a really hard section of the piece. Do you have, do you have dreams like that? So yeah, sometimes, sometimes, or I have a piece where I'm where like I'm about to like like perform something, and I know what I'm performing, but I don't have the music, or like I don't have a read, or something like I'm missing some key thing, or yeah, yeah, same thing. This novel is like a dream. Uh, a it's like a novel version of those dreams. Um, and it's kind of also like if Kafka wrote a book about music, so uh -huh. really good. And then cool. um, Doctor Faustus by Thomas Mann. That's about a composer, a fake composer, Adrian Leverkuhn, who invents the 12-tone system, which is a real thing invented by Arnold Schoenberg. Uh -huh. And he, Thomas Mann wrote this when he was living in L.A. And Schoenberg lived in L.A. at the same time and helped him with like the music re like related stuff in the book. But um, for anyone who doesn't know, like the Faust myth is just like the guy sells his soul to the devil for like 20 years or whatever of um, productivity. And so this composer, Adrian Leverkuhn, sent, sells his soul to the devil and invents the 12-tone system. And Schoenberg was so pissed about that because he was like, I didn't need to sell my soul to the devil. I fucking did it on my own. It's like, <laughs> okay, take it down, take it down a notch, Arnie. Um, oh my but God. Th the book is really um, like an allegory about the rise of Hitler and the rise of fascism in Europe. Right. Um, it's a really awesome book. 10 out of 10. Cool. And uh, yeah, that's that. Those are two novels I really love about music. Nice, nice, nice. All right. Where am I at? Okay. My next thing is the Coin Coin series by Matana Roberts, which we actually wow. have already talked about on this um, podcast because we, um, I think we were talking about like new albums that we've listened to this year, but this whole like Matana Roberts is a, a saxophonist, contemporary saxophonist who's around today making amazing music. And she's like, very like just all in on avant-garde music and free jazz and it's so so good it's i mean it's really heavy and emotional listening but it's like very powerful and i like look forward to like what she does next i think it's like amazing stuff there's supposed to be more volumes of that coming out right yeah but she also has a, a something new out with um another musician it's not under it, like when you look her up on spotify it's not just under her solo music it's i forget the other guy's name i think he's a guitar player but um she does really good stuff it's crazy to me that some people are so like prolific and productive that they can have this like they're like i'm gonna make 10 volumes of coin coin but in the meantime i'm also just gonna like put out other albums <laughs> like, yeah yeah you know i have yeah. to like do one thing until it's done i can't fucking i can't <laughs> fuck around and like you know yeah you'd be having multiple side projects and shit some people just put, pump it out you know she does it hmm. she's pumping it out okay so she's a she's a performer so mm -hmm. i'm gonna give yeah your list is gonna end up being longer than mine because i'm gonna start just like giving uh well anyways so like here are three of my favorite piano performers this is all for me like desert island stuff like if i was on a deserted island these are the things i'd want to have with me while i'm there oh, okay okay just, like just in general that's how i was approaching this um so uh if anyone listening didn't know i was a pianist that would be shocked because why are you listening to this and i don't know you <laughs> and um but three of my three of my favorite pianists are Sviatoslav Richter, 
Glenn Gould, and Chris John Zimmerman. Real mm. quick, here's why. Glenn Gould, no matter what he plays, you hear Glenn Gould. Like his Mozart doesn't sound like Mozart. It sounds like Glenn Gould. His Bach doesn't sound like Bach. It sounds like Glenn Gould. And that's the thing that's really lacking these days. Like if you search on Spotify for like the well-tempered clavier or like Beethoven sonatas, let's say, there's been like a hundred recordings of Beethoven sonatas out this year alone. And you can't tell the difference between any of them. You know, like all the pianos sound the same. Everyone's out to do the, what the fuck? Pianists. But anyways, everyone sounds the same. That's all. Yeah. Richter, I love because like you can hear the sound come from his bones and he plays everything way slower than it's <laughs> than, than everyone else plays it. And it's ruined all other performances of those pieces for me. Like where's the fucking fire yeah. in, in, in Schubert sonatas. He plays it so slow. I love it. And then Christian Zimmerman is also similar to why I love Richter. Like just the sound is so like deep and penetrating and when they're two performers that like when i hear it i'm like damn that's what i want to play like that's that's uh yeah that's what i want to hear all right let's um let's take a break real quick sure What up? We're back. What up? <clears throat> We're back. What do you got there? I just got some fried rice with tofu, crispy tofu, um, scallions. Pretty oh. good. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. <clears throat> Let's go on. I'm more interested in your, I'm going to get through mine so fast just so we can do yours. I'm going to keep grouping mine together <laughs> in, uh, okay. So let's hear yours. Number six. No, wait. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. I already just said coin coin. My next thing, number seven, <laughs> I just wrote down the Hammond B3 organ because that is the fucking best instrument that has ever been created. It's so fucking cool. I love any anything that, anybody who touches the Hammond B3 organ, it just sounds so fucking good. It's like a whole orchestra. And like, when you listen to Jimmy Smith play, Jimmy Smith is like, you know, one of the pioneers of, uh, of this instrument in the 60s. It sounds like he's like just composing a big band right there. I mean, it's so good. You could just listen to like somebody playing the drum set and a Hammond B3 organ, just like duo. And it's so interesting. Yeah. So I love that instrument. I was going to ask, like I figured instruments would come up and I was going to ask if saxophone was your favorite instrument. And I assumed the answer was no. <laughs> no. Is it Hammond B3 organ? Maybe, but I do have something related to saxophone later on in the list that I think you'll okay, like. Okay, so. okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's funny, like I used to struggle so hard playing solo piano or, e- or solo jazz piano or even just playing jazz duo with you. Mm-hmm. Or like, if you're playing jazz piano and you don't have a at least a bassist behind you, like you have to do that somehow. Either you play stride piano yeah. or you walk bass lines or you do something else that's cool. I can't do any of those things. And then someone like Jimmy Smith <clears throat> takes it even further. Like they still comp with the left hand and they still play lines with the right hand, but he fucking walks bass lines with his feet. And that's yeah. the most insane thing to me. Like when I found out his trios are drums, guitar and organ, and there's no bassist, but there's walking bass lines. I'm like, who the fuck is walking that bass line? <laughs> is that dude's fucking feet? 
Yeah. And I think like what's really cool about it too, is that there, you know, as a piano player, you only have so much of a range in like the tone quality that you can achieve with the keys. Now hold your goddamn horses. This guy's pulling out stops. You know what I mean? This guy's pulling out stops to completely change the sound of the instrument. You know what I mean? It's like a drastic change. Yeah. Okay. You're kind of right about that. I I know that reject that piano has a limited color palette, but I know where you're coming from. I mean, yeah, I know what you're, I know what you're, I know what you're saying too, but, um, do you remember, remember when we took composition with Dave Hynek? Yeah. I remember one day in class, he was talking shit about piano it was and said something like, if I play with my finger or with a pen cap, there's no difference in the color of the sound. Uh-huh. And I was like, you fucking son of a bitch. See that? I disagree with. I, I, I think that's a little extreme. That's an insane take. Yeah. And that dude's a pianist. Yeah. And then also <laughs> like, okay, he's never going to hear this. And no one who listens to this is going to tell him I said it. No. But yeah. that's what it sounds like when he plays piano. It sounds like it might as well be a bunch of pen caps pressing down the keys. Like there is no yeah. variability in the color, but yeah. that's partially because he doesn't acknowledge that it exists as a possibility anyways. Yeah, so he's not worried about it. <laughs> he's not worried about it. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh... That's right. pretty funny. Okay. Dave Heineck, a composer. I'm just going to rattle off my, some of my favorite composers. <laughs> Um, uh, some of whom we've already talked about on the show. Mahler, obviously. Schubert, obviously. These two are going to come up again later. Don't worry about it, Nick. Third, Ligeti. Eventually, we got to have a Ligeti episode. And fourth, oh, and yeah, kind, of a, um, kind of a hot take, is List. Um, so okay. List is like the first modern pianist he's one of the first pianists to play rep- the repertoire of other pianists or of other composers right like he's he's one of the first ones that starts to build the canon and makes it popular to play works by dead composers in concert so he's just oh. like supremely important in the history of western music for that alone yeah um he's also supremely important in terms of developing piano technique but also as a composer, like in the late 1830s or 18 or early 1840s, he settles down in Weimar and he quits the concert stage. There was a thing called listomania. Like it was called listomania back then. And it was the same thing as Beatles mania where like people would freak the fuck out when list came to town because he was such a virtuoso, yeah. such an amazing musician. They ladies were fainting. Dudes were getting raging hard ons, you know, like I, <laughs> And all, he quit that life. He saw too many hard-ons. And he, so he went to Weimar and he focused on composing. And often his compositions are short-changed because all we hear are the like flashy piano things. But I took a class this semester um, that was just called Topics or Issues in the Analysis of 19th Century Music or something. And uh-huh. list came up all the time. And it like the general population doesn't admire him much as a composer theorists and analysts really do he plays a large role in like either furthering western tonality or the breakdown of like tonal harmony and he's a really really important um figure like yeah for yeah and he rocks um 
some interesting things about Liszt. Well, actually, I think the airport in Hungary is named after him. That's pretty cool. Franz Liszt Airport. Um, he was Hungarian, never knew how to speak Hungarian. Um, really? Because it was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. German was a spoken language, but he could also speak French. He might have spoken English, maybe a few other things. He, But he spoke several languages, but not his native Hungarian. Um, his daughter was married to Hans von Bülow, this like amazing 19th century conductor. But she left him for um, uh, Wagner. <laughs> and she, <laughs> yeah, like Cosima Wagner is uh, Liszt's daughter. Wow. And her, her mother, I forget. I, her mother is Marie Dagoul, who was a writer under the pen name Daniel Stern. Um, yeah, also I found out recently that Liszt probably met Karl Marx in like revolutionary salons in Paris in the late, uh, or in the 1840s. Yeah, he probably met Karl Marx. And I think that Whoa. is so cool. <laughs> That's sick. They they had like a they had shared acquaintances and there's reason to believe that they were like at the same salons at the same time. Which is so fucking cool to me. That's amazing. Holy shit. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Right. So that's that's list. Keep it going, Nick. All right. My next thing I wrote down is Laura Stevenson's self-titled album that came out in 2021 last year. And Laura Stevenson is really awesome. She writes amazing music and she has kind of this really unique vocal style. And she uses kind of like this sometimes like she just like has like this weird vibrato and words are kind of connected in a way that sometimes it's hard to understand what she's saying. But I like looked at the lyrics as I listened to this record and it's so good. She's such an amazing lyricist. Like I, and and she kind of has like this punk sensibility, but her songs have more of like a, like an almost like a '90s pop feel. But her approach is like rooted in like like DIY punk. And as she was the keyboardist with Bomb the Music Industry for a while, um, and she's oh. just like she's so good. Um, I, I really like her. All of her solo music is like like always always hits. What's your favorite lyric? Um, let's see. Um, in the face of those I love, am I the sort that jumps out of moving cars? Okay. Yeah, she's really well, she's really good. <clears throat> I've never listened to her. Should I? Yeah. Yeah, she's good. Right. I'll make you. I'll make you. I'll make you a mixtape. Oh, thanks, bro. Oh, mixtapes. That would be really cool. Get ready. List here. Yeah. Oh, shit. That's right. Making mixtapes back in the day. Oh, my God. We blew it. <laughs> yeah. Damn. All right. Actually, my friend Kathleen um, sent us like a 2022 style mixtape where she mailed us a piece of paper with a list of songs that we could like go on Spotify and listen to in that order. And I thought that was a pretty interesting like. That's cool. Um, yeah, like a new way to consider a mixtape instead of sending like the physical media, which doesn't matter anymore. Right. Send send the uh, like a physical piece of paper with a list of the the media to find yourself. Yeah, and search it on whatever platform you want. Yeah, I thought cool. that was pretty cool. I like it. Did you burn a lot of CDs back in the day? Oh yeah, dude. I yeah, was, was burning, awesome. I was. I've. I'm still burning CDs sometimes. A couple of years ago, I I made an album called A Bug in the Cloud. And that, that is like 
all just I made I like made the sleeve. I went to like fucking like Staples and I got like prints out of the sleeve because mm-hmm. it's all like hand drawn. And I I got like um just these blank discs and I burnt like fifty CDs and would sell it when I would do shows. Cool. And I wrote I wrote like one out of fifty on it. I you wonder. Know. Do you think you could? Or do you think somebody could collect all 50 copies of it? Do you think they still exist? I don't know. Maybe. That would be so cool. Yeah. I probably sold like, I probably have maybe still like 20 of them in my, like just in a box in my closet. (laughs) But 30 of them are out there somewhere. Anyway. Cool. Why don't you do another one? All right. My next thing that I wrote down is a venue. Oh, perfect. It was a venue in DC called Rhizome with the best avant-garde and improvised music in the city of Washington, DC. And that's where I did the album release show of another album I put out called Bitingly Right. Um, And it's a really cool place. And I've been to so many great shows there and recently opened back up again after it was closed for a long time due to COVID. So. Oh, I thought it closed forever. No. It, that was uh, Epicure, that close forever. Oh, oh, okay. Which sucks because that was, I played there all the fucking time. And they, that was another really good venue, but uh, they are officially close forever. Damn. All right, cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Here's uh, Here are some weird things I really like. Cool. The music of Conlon Nancaro. Conlon Nancaro was just a dude who lived like in a garage and he was an American who spent most of his time in a garage in Mexico city and he wrote music for player piano and it's oh. music that's like <laughs> too insane to ever be performed by humans. Most of it. Yeah. Um, but it's really, really cool. Um, yeah. He's a wild dude. That's fun. I like the idea of that. Yeah. Another one. Uh, another weird thing I really like is a piece by the dude who wrote the film Ludwig von that I mentioned earlier. He has a piece called um, MM51 mm-hmm. and MM meaning um, like Mazel's metronome, metronome mark 51. And so you, you play the piece with a metronome. And um, if you play it with one of the old timey ones that you wind up that click back and forth, you're supposed to build a little platform for it that you can alter with your foot because those things operate on gravity, like, or by gravity. And if you offset its balance, it clicks out of sync. Whoa. So it goes like, and then yeah. if you offset it, it'd be like, that's so cool. And anyways, it's a piece based around that. And um, there's all this like performance art stuff at the end. You're supposed to do all this cackling and screaming and stuff. And it's just like one of the coolest pieces for piano ever. That's always, amazing. Yeah. I always toy with learning it. I have the score and like, you know how much I love practicing with a metronome and here I get to actually perform a piece with a metronome. Like it seems mm-hmm. like, like the next logical step for me. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, those are, yeah, two, two of my favorite weird things. I like the physicality there. Like the idea, like you're moving the metronome around and that's changing like how the piece is or how you're experiencing the, the beat. And it's amazing. Yeah. And also like how many fucking pieces of classical music require you to build like it's like yeah. it doesn't tell you how to do it. It's like you have to figure out a way how to build this thing. Like, okay, a, well, I'm also yeah. not a carpenter. I'm in. I like, what do you want? What do you want from me, bitch? Lots of trips oh. down to Home Depot. Yeah. Do you remember 
Well, no, fuck it. Go on. <laughs> okay. The next thing I wrote is Future 86 by Bond the Music Industry. The fucking such a good song. I could listen to that song literally any day. And it's one so, of the best songs ever. so good. One of the best songs ever. And that's all I even need to say about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Next. Next. You want me to go again? Yeah, go again. Next thing I wrote is in all caps playing F blues. <laughs> Because the F blues there. Now there's another thing I could do any day. If I had to, if I could, if I only like had, could only play one piece of music for the rest of my life, it would just be like just an open F blues, no melody, just like just blown over the F blues. I mean, it's so good. That kind of sounds like a hot take, but it's really not. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) Uh, What? Give me your top three favorite F blueses. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's see. We'll go with Billy's Bounce. Gotta get yeah, classic. Bounce. You have to. <laughs> um, oh, is Sandu an F? That might be E flat. Mm. Oh, Second Race. That's an F, right? Second Race by Thad Jones. Hell yeah, that's <laughs> definitely an F. And then, okay, number, okay, so that would be number two because Sandu is an E flat. So what's another? Well, F? hold on a sec. I'm trying to find Sandu. Yeah, I feel like it. You know what? I feel like you're right. I'm. Pro- I'm probably not. I can't tell if the things I'm seeing are in uh, concert pitch or B flat. If it was in B, f- if a B flat score listed it in E flat, that would mean it was in D flat, right? Wait, wait. I'm sorry. What? If like Altus, if the Altus score Altus in B. Or- no, 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 no. Like, because Clifford Brown's trumpet, right? B flat. Mm-hmm. And if a B flat score is written in E flat, that's concert D flat, right? Or is that concert F? That would be concert D flat. Okay, then I think it's an E flat. Okay. Well, I'll go with straight note chaser. I'm pretty sure that's an F. Oh, yeah, that's an F. That's a good one also. Um, cool. All right, next thing I wrote down. Uh, oh, you want to go? What'd you got? Um, okay, I got. I'll split. I'll split these one up. These ones up. I got four like nonfiction books about music that have oh, shaped cool. the, the musician I am. Nice. So I'll split these up. Um, first, the Imaginary Museum of Musical Works by Lydia Gurr, and this book is a history of what we consider like a musical work. So. Like when we encounter a Beethoven symphony or a Beethoven sonata or whatever, or anything by Bach as a piece that, as a, as a thing, an object that starts with the first note that's on the page and ends with the last note that's on the page and only the notes in between, right? That's a, a relatively recent phenomenon that we consider that a work in the history of Western music. Um, for instance, like Chris Creveston, your saxophone teacher would tell us all the time in about Bach, like if he wrote something for bassoon, flute, and oboe, but a bassoonist didn't show up that day, he didn't give a shit. He would just give it to cello and the cellist <laughs> would play it, right? Do you remember Creveston talking about that with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Whoever shows up to the gig. <laughs> whoever shows up to the gig plays, right? And, but that's the dominating like mode of thought in classical music today. Like, can you imagine if a, if a symphony orchestra, like, 
let someone like open up in the middle of a cadenza or like take do a prelude to Beethoven five or something like that. It's on, it's yeah. unheard of. Yeah. Um, and so this, this, this book is like a history of how that idea came to be. And um, that's really cool. Yeah, it's definitely foundational for me as a musician. Um, yeah. Anyways, that's that. Nice. Nice. Um, all right. Next up. I've got, okay, this is a song, um, it's called 12 Stars, which is from Melissa Aldana's most recent album that just came out like last month that I've been listening to like a lot. Uh, it's the last track on the album also called 12 Stars and it's a really beautiful ballad. It's really cool. It's like, I, you know, you hear like a modern jazz piece and like you hear like somebody do like their own original ballad, but, and sometimes it's like, okay, like I get it. I like really like ballads from like, like the, you know, American songbook ballads, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, big time. Like those are great. I could listen to those all the time. But this this is like just really blows me away. And I like actually really like I think Melissa Aldana is like one of the like just like one of the top jazz tenor players right now and she's saxophonist from from Chile. And she's on tour and actually she's from she she actually I think maybe she lived in New York for a little while too, but she was just on tour um and she came to, through DC, but I was not in town for it, sadly. But um, yeah, but anyway. Wait, so like what separates this from other modern jazz ballads you don't like or what is similar about it to like American songbook ballads you do like? I don't even know if it's similar to American songbook ballads, but it's just very, um, it's very short. It's like three minutes long. It sound, it's like, like sometimes you hear like, I don't know, like a ballad is so fucking long. Um, Oh, so is your definition modern... of a good ballad like your definition of a good movie? 90 minutes and funny? 90 minutes and funny, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> Three minutes and... <laughs> no, it's just like really, it's it's unique. I'm just like, I, you don't hear stuff like this a lot. And I, I can't describe what exactly it is, but um, it's it doesn't have like really like wild upper extension, like weird harmony things that you hear in a lot of modern jazz. It's just like very like, like, I don't know, you could you could hear it almost in like a, a completely different context other than jazz too. It's really cool. Anyway, her, her tone quality though is just beautiful. Like you hear her play um, and she's like, sometimes it sounds like a saxophone, but other times it just sounds like she's singing. She's got this amazing vocal lyrical quality to her playing, but I oh. definitely recommend her, her um, album 12 stars which just came out recently. Okay, cool. Sold. Thanks for uh, never telling me about it before. Probably would like <laughs> to hear it. <laughs> I can, I like to keep things secret. You know? Are you fucking hogging her so you can be like, I knew about her the next time I come back to you, you know, if I happen right. to hear of her? That's right. Yeah. That's what I like to do. <sighs> okay. Here's my next, um, here's my next one. This is a book by two French dudes, last names Carl and Kamoli, called Free Jazz, Black Power. And this is a book yeah. I have never shut the fuck up about. Yeah. It's like in every, every chance I get, I'll mention this book to people. And what it is, is it's an, um, an examination of the relationship between free jazz and the black power movement, obviously, as the title would have you um, <laughs> suspect, but it's much more than that. It's a history of black music in America. And essentially the history of black music in America um, is like black musicians do a thing, white 
record producers or like white capitalists, white people who have access to means of recording production. Oh, and like, whatever, they record the music, they make it popular. The black musicians obviously aren't um, compensated for anything. Right. Um, that's the history of black music in America. Black musicians invent a thing, white people copy it, sell it, make money off it, blah, blah, blah. And their argument is that the free jazz movement was black jazz musicians attempts to reclaim the music of jazz as like an expressive improvisatory music, but in a way that is not marketable and not that can't be sold. It can't be commodified because no one wants to listen to it except for like fucking wackos like, like me and Nick. I mean, and a whole bunch of other wackos. Like there's, you know, um, so that's the overarching uh, like argument of the book. And I remember um, I, I, the, uh, I discovered this book like so randomly. When I lived in Boston, there was a book store called Brookline Booksmith I would go to every once in a while. And I would always check out the music section. And there's always like books about like David Bowie and Bob Dylan and Prince or something. And like nothing I was kind of interested in. But then one day I saw this free jazz black power. Okay, there's no price on it. I'm like, okay. What's the fucking price on this? It's from University of Mississippi Press. It's probably expensive, no price. I go up to the front, they're like, I'm like, how much is this? And it was either like eight, I think it was like $80. And I was like, oh my God, I need to think about it. I went outside, I walked around the block. I probably had a cigarette. I went to the, I went, there was a Bank of America. I went and checked my balance. I had a hundred dollars. I was like, okay, fuck it. I went back and bought it. And then, and then, that night, this is so this is so weird. I was also I was an usher at the time at Jordan Hall at New England Conservatory, mm-hmm. and I worked that night and was just like shooting the shit with some lady who was sitting in my section or whatever. And after um, intermission, she came out and gave me a hundred dollars, and I was like, "What? Like, what are you doing?" And she was like. You know, when I was young and I was really in a spot, like someone, some stranger like gave me money and it really went a long way. And I just always wanted to like repay that favor. So I'm giving you a hundred dollars, like what? use it, use it to buy. um, She, she told me to use it to buy sheet music or something. And I was like, lady, I spent $80 on a free jazz book today. It was the last $80 I had. This shit is going to groceries, but thank you so much. Um, That's crazy. I never did. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's such a cool story. Yeah. Oh my God. Cool. So in the end, it, I was right to spend 80 of my last hundred dollars on this book because <laughs> I just got it back later, you know? Yeah. If anything, you, but anyways, yeah. that's like the best book ever. And it, I highly recommend it to anybody. It really, did it really it? is. I did read it. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so good. Um, Cool. All right. Well, actually, I'm glad that that is what you just said, because that leads into my next one. This is the next thing I wrote down. Jackie McLean on Mars, which is a 1979 short film directed by Ken Levis about Jackie McLean and who is not really not really a free jazz musician, but like kind of this same mentality of like kind of like uh, anti-consumerism and like a rejection of how the mainstream views jazz. And that's basically what the documentary is about. And it's really it's actually it's on YouTube. It's really short. It's like 30 minutes long. So perfect. Oh, you must love it. 
that's my criteria. It's not really funny, but, <laughs> but it's really good length for me. Um, so yeah, and there, it's mainly footage of him just kind of talking at, at his house in Hartford and also him doing lectures at University of Hartford. Um, and he, he actually started the jazz program at Hart School of Music. And um, there's some really good, good footage of him. Yeah, in like the 1970s, he was like the, the um, kind of the pioneer of it. Um, and he's just, he's amazing. I love Jackie McLean. He's, I just like, his music is just blows me away all the time. Um, he started probably... as a pop player, but played a little bit more like, like post bop, like kind of almost started to dabble a little bit more with like experimental and avant-garde stuff, but um, not quite at the same, in the same way like Ornette Coleman did. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. He's probably the only dude, like, I, everything you tell me to check out, read, watch, listen to, I always do. And you've probably been telling me to listen to Jackie McLean for 15 years now. And I've never listened to him. I don't know why. That's okay. Start, honestly, start with the documentary. Cause it's a, it's really good. And, and then you'll be like, you'll kind of get what he's all about. Hmm. The title on Mars reminds me of like Sun Ra or something. Yeah. And he might even cite Sun Ra in the, in the, in the documentary. Hmm. Yeah. Cause Sun right. Ra was from Saturn. <laughs> right. Yeah. He doesn't know shit, obviously. <laughs> Come on, get it together. Um, all right. Here's another, here's another book. I really love Nick. Hit me. It's by Jacques Attali, who's not a musician. He's a like political theorist or economist or something. Okay. This book is called Noise, The Political Economy of Music. And it's a really weird book. And I think people don't, it, it's not like taken seriously by anyone who studies music or economics or, or anything, <laughs> but it's really interesting. And the overarching thesis of this book is that all, um, and it's been a long time since I've read it and I'm kind of drunk now, so I'm not going to talk too much about it because I can't remember specifics of the argument, but basically the argument is that all changes in society and in the way the economy functions are prefigured in music and in the way we consume and reproduce and like think about music. So like, I, I, okay, I can't, I can't think about it at all, but that's, that's the overarching thesis that the way we consume music and produce music prefigures a change in the general economy at, at large. Whoa, that's fucking crazy. It's really crazy. And it's a really good book. Nice. It's a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. I love it. I love it. All right. My next thing is the bad plus cover of the Rite of Spring. It's oh, so really fucking good. good. <laughs> Come on now. Come on. <laughs> we'll drink to that, right? Okay. The bad plus really good jazz trio. They do all kinds of weird shit and they covered the Rite of Spring and it's so cool. I love that it's album. so cool. Yeah. Um, so I took, when I was living in Boston, um, I took my friend Wolfgang to see the bad plus play the right of spring at the <laughs> institute of contemporary art it's like really cool oh fuck this really cool museum yeah oh that's right like, i think you may have maybe told me about that i when, yeah. when you went to see them play the play this the right of spring live that's awesome yeah it was fucking awesome and what was cool is that it was it was in um i mean it must have been the centennial of the right of spring like 9 2013 or 14 yeah 
I can't remember if the Rite of Spring was premiered in 1913 or 14. But anyways, it was the 100-year anniversary. So we got to see the Bad Plus played at ICA, but also the orchestra at New England Conservatory was playing it. Um, cool. And I also got to go to that with Wolfgang. But what was funny is that he had never heard it before. Um, and obviously, like, I was familiar with Rite of Spring from watching Fantasia as a kid. And also, <laughs> But Wolfgang's not a musician, so that's not on him. You know, that's that's not a fault of, of his. Sure. Um, but um, so we went to see Rite of Spring. And I remember talking to him about it beforehand, like we were having a beer. And I was like, the orchestra this is written for is so humongous. Like, I can't imagine how a jazz trio can pull it off. Then we go to yeah. see it. And then the next time we were having a beer before seeing the orchestra play it. And he was like, after having seen a jazz trio play it, I can't imagine how an orchestra can play that piece. That's so funny. It was really cool. Oh my God. Uh, that's awesome. It's, it, it's cool to hear, to hear the piece, the bad plus, and then the piece again, like have it bookended by the actual piece because that that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, actually there was, there wasn't the bookend. It was just the bad plus And then, Oh, oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, either way, it seems like it seems like it's so right. What you said, it's like such a massive orchestra that the piece is written for. How how can a trio do it? And it's like the I don't know what it what it is or how they approached it, but it's so it makes they just make it sound so cool. Yeah, the and orchestra is so big that some of the percussionists were off stage. Like they had to open up like. Um, not emergency doors, but like stage doors that stay closed during performance. So percussionists could be back there and still see the conductor because the orchestra yeah. is too big. That's crazy. Yeah. I think, um, oh fuck, what was I just going to say? I fucking forgot. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. One more thing about Red Spring. <laughs> okay. Everyone knows in classical music, like about the premiere of the Red Spring, about how there were, there was a riot at the premiere. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's kind of like oversold. It's kind of hyperbolic. There was a riot, but it was more about the dancing than it was about the music um, because they just played, okay. they played just the music like a week or so later and no one gave a shit. Like it was fine. It was mostly about the dancing. Got it. But what was really cool when the orchestra NEC played it is there wasn't fights, but people were like confronting security about getting a spot in the hall to hear it. <laughs> There were too many people and people were trying to sit in the aisles and security was like, no, you can't sit there. It's a fire hazard. And everyone yeah. was all fucking up in arms about not getting to see it versus like at the that's, premiere. And, and it's, I thought that was a really funny way of how things like that's funny. get subsumed into the, into acceptable culture. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. This zoom's running out of time. So let's take a break real quick. Word. And then uh, we'll get right back to it. Cool. What's up? What's up? Nothing. What's up, dude? All right. All right. Okay. We're back. Keep rolling. We're back, everybody. All right. Okay. Next thing on my thing is uh, a great record called Dearly Beloved by Stanley Turrentine. 
Stanley Turrentine is a tenor saxophonist from Pittsburgh, actually. And um, uh, this record also features a really great Hammond V3 organist named Shirley Scott. And she's like little known organist, like no, like she's very, very few people listen to Shirley Scott. She's so good um, and is from Philadelphia and just kills it. And I think- Wait, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh? Shirley's from Philadelphia. Stanley's oh. from Pittsburgh. Got it, got it. Sorry, um, sorry. And she, here's how she's different from Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith has a really yeah. bluesy style. Like he's just like real bluesy and soul and like, like soul oriented and gospel oriented. She incorporates more bop elements and like just oh. like bebop lines and shit. That's how she's like a little bit more different, I think, than than, than some of the other organ. Like there's like Jack McDuff and like Jimmy McGriff and some of these guys like r- super like soul soulful. And she also, of course, is plenty soulful, but she has like a lot of bop vocabulary that she includes in her playing. Um, and this album is so fucking good. Um, I can listen to this any any day. So check wow. it out, dearly dearly beloved. You're pretty deep on the B three scene. I do like that. I will, I, but also Stanley Turrentine is, is like a big tenor saxophone influence of mine. And he just happened to play a lot with like organ players. And I used to listen to him a lot when I was younger. So I feel like I, I just heard organ a lot. My dad also was in a band with an organist um, who played Hammond B3 and I would always listen to them play. So I just was I always, even from a young age, just hearing a lot of B3, so. Let me ask you a question. Stanley Turrentine. Uh-huh. Saxo- tenor saxophone? Tenor sax, yeah. If if there was a book published about like the generally accepted top ten tenor saxophonists, would he be in it? Top ten, probably. He's in my top ten. I know he's in yours, obviously. I would I would say so. He's pretty he's pretty influential on in tenor in the tenor world. Um, in what way? Um. Well, I think he he comes onto the scene during like the hard bop era when things were um, moving away from like just like really fast bebop lines all the time and becoming more um, hard bop is usually defined as like like kind of a return to blues and gospel and like uh-huh. really hard 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 swinging things like uh, like you know Art Blakey. People think of Art Blakey when they think of hard bop. Yeah. Um, and he was a tenor saxophone player who I think was like right at the forefront of that scene when that was happening. Okay. Okay, cool. He's another one I've never checked out. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's got like Stanley a Stanley beef- Turpentine? Turpentine? Turpentine. Turpentine. Turpentine, yeah. He's got a big okay. beefy sound, so I think I think you'll dig. Check it out. Okay, cool. I'm in. Um. Oh my god, I just want to finish this forty so bad, so I can drink something else. <laughs> um. All right, you want me to go again? You got something? You want it's me disgusting. To I'll go again. You go. This is probably. This is for me like one of the most form like formational books about the way I approach piano today. It's by Kenneth Hamilton. It's called After the Golden Age, Romantic Pianism and Modern Performance. And the overarching thesis of this book is that 
what we think we're upholding in the piano tradition today is actually the opposite of the things that the people were we think we're following actually did. Did that make any sense? Yeah. But like, yeah, the sort of like when you go to a fucking piano concert and it's so boring, they fucking walk out on stage, you clap, they bow, they play the fucking piece the same way they've always played it. And that everyone's always heard it. They, you, they bow, you clap, they leave, they come back. He calls it um, like a funeral. It's like a funereal procession, all this fucking slow marching to the piano. You look up into the rafters to get inspired by the spirits. And then you play the fucking piece Mm -hmm. Um, that that's actually really in conflict with how the people we admire in the past actually performed and behaved. Wow. Like, <laughs> and like, obviously you've played with me so much and you've seen me play. Like the, the reason I do a lot of the things I do is because of this book. Like sure. the either like the changing of notes in a Beethoven piece, like I, well, I, I don't give a fuck what Beethoven wrote or like, preluding or improvising or you know like merging yeah. pieces together segueing pieces into each other it's because yeah. like this book and the argument he makes that that's actually what they were doing um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean that that's, I mean, that's that's kind of it yeah and i think but i think you really capture that with your with your approach it's like the way you played goldberg variations too i think that was like like you know with your your own take on the variations i think that's you are capturing those ideas in your performance right like if you want to fucking hear if you want to hear it with all the right notes go home and listen to it i'm not going to play all the right notes yeah (laughs) then also like you know i mean i wish i played the right notes but if we had recordings of these people they they wouldn't play the right notes either no there was this um Jeremy Dank, this pianist, wrote an article for The New Yorker about his experience recording the Ives Second Sonata, which the the second sonata by Charles Ives, um, it's called the um, Concord Sonata, and it's about the American transcendentalists that were living in Concord, Massachusetts. So like Mm -hmm. Thoreau, Emerson, um, Walden, and the Alcotts. And there's four, there's four movements each dedicated to one of those guys and or, or, or people, and yeah. um, like he he's it's four movements. It's like fifty minutes of music or so maybe. And he said he used over six hundred takes of music to make it. And the line in his article that stood out the most to me was that he said it was something like, "Today recordings uh, are shit." Today, um, or okay, so let me let me take a step back. When Arthur Schnabel, my great great grand teacher, recorded the Beethoven piano sonatas for the first time, it was like you fucking put some wax down, you record, and that's it. You don't get to edit it. You don't get to splice things in. If you fucking put wrong notes in there, if you play wrong notes, they're in the they're on the they're, wax. You like they're fucking on. They're on the record, bro. There's no getting around it. Um, no. But the when you listen to Schnabel's recordings, though there are wrong notes, they're amazing. And Dank said something like, there was a time when recordings were performances. And that's true. You don't get a second take in performances. And back yeah. in the day, you didn't get a ta- second take in recordings. And then he's, he's so he said, um, uh, recordings used to be performances, but now today 
performances sound like recordings. And what he meant by that was today we have like editing technology where we've, we've, we've become accustomed to hearing um, pieces played perfectly with no wrong notes by virtue of digital recording technology. So when we go to a concert hall, we expect to hear a piece played with no wrong notes, but that's totally antithetical to how music has always been performed. And like, you know, fuck it. I, there, there's a part, there's a part of me, the part of me that hates myself that thinks I'm only using that as a justification for how many wrong notes I play and how bad I am at piano. But then there's also a part of me that's like trying to take a step back and think like, yeah, there's, there's nothing in the score that says all the right notes must be played or something, you know, like that's kind of a silly way to put it, but that. Yeah. Do you think that's wrong notes and mistakes? Sorry. Sorry. No, I I was going to say, do you think that's why so many performers like get performance anxiety now? Or is a reason for it? Or like, I mean, not because that's not the only reason, obviously, but is that you think that could cause somebody to have performance anxiety? Well, I mean, if (laughs) it might not apply to saxophone in the repertoire you play. But unless you play in like Bach or something, I mean that was kind of a, that was kind of a joke. I'm sorry that was that was a a, a dick kind of joke about saxophone. But no, like I, I am on board with that. <laughs> like if you play the Moonlight Sonata or something, like everyone knows what the Moonlight Sonata is supposed to sound like. If there's a wrong note, people are gonna know, right? And I. I think the expectation that we get from digital recordings that things will be performed perfectly is is potentially a source of performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. Richter, the pianist I mentioned earlier, um, this, as, just as an aside, he was getting ready once to play um, the Liszt first piano concerto, and he was so nervous and really like kind of distraught. And someone asked, someone asked what was wrong. And he said, I'm afraid of being ashamed or embarrassed. And um, they said, embarrassed or ashamed in front of the audience. And he said, no, in front of list. And (laughs) basically that's what I want to do. I want to be ashamed to perform in front of the composer of the piece and, and not in front of the audience that's become accustomed to hearing it perfectly. Like if I could play, I'm sure list played wrong notes, right? I don't care if there's wrong notes, if list would approve of like the Elan and the style and the like dramatic flair of the performance. Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, this was like a really fundamental book for me. Another one I read when I was in Boston and that just like absolutely changed my relationship to piano and, and performance. Cool. Nice. All right. Next thing. I wrote is the soundtrack from Blade Runner by Vangelis, who is a great composer. Actually just passed away like this week. Really? Yeah. Um, And this is a great soundtrack because, okay, I in theory should love this movie, but every time I watch it, I'm I'm thinking to myself like, this is going to be the time that I know what's going on and I understand it. And I, and I'm I'm gonna like it, but but I'm always just like the music is so sick. Like honestly, I would just watch it. Just it's almost just like when you watch like the original cut of Blade Runner, you're just kind of like watching like just 
the experience of it and hearing the score and it's just like all very spaced out and weird um i don't really know what the fuck is going on in the movie but it's i i still like it and i love oh, okay but more 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 so than that i just i love the score i love the score okay here's my blade runner take i've tried to watch it several times and every time i like you just said i enter it thinking this is the time i'm gonna like it yeah but i never like it <laughs> it's like i love it, it's ridley scott right yeah yeah, I like Ridley Scott. I like Philip K. Dick. I like sci-fi. Right. I like Harrison Ford. What the fuck? And Why the, don't I like that movie? I not, never like it. Yeah, not to mention like ep, an epic score and like an just an epic. Um, it has such a good look to it. It looks so crazy. You know. You know what? I actually I strongly disagree. I hate the look of it. I oh, think really? that might be why I don't like it. Oh, okay. it's so dark. I can't see anything. <laughs> That's funny. We make this joke a lot. Anytime we're watching something serious, we're like, turn the, turn the lights on, like turn the damn lights on Netflix. What are they, you know, what are they doing here? <laughs> yeah. That's see. how I feel about Blade Runner. I can't see shit. The future is not so, I mean, there's still sunshine for now. I don't know. But anyways, I, uh, yeah, the movie's okay, but, but the soundtrack really is amazing. It's so, so cool. Did you like 2049? I did. I thought that was really cool. I like Did you like it better, better than the original? I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What are your top th- three Ridley Scott movies? Um, you go first, because I don't know if I know as many. Yeah, I probably know I a few. <laughs> I think Alien you, for, for one. Did you do the Martian? Martian is up there for me. That's a good one. I would say Alien too. Alien, Martian, Blade Runner. Those are the three I know. <laughs> oh shit! He also did Gladiator. <laughs> Gladiator. No way. Okay, now I have to see Gladiator. <laughs> okay. All right. It's got a good score. Okay, and- but for sure, Alien is. Uh, sorry, I'm just gonna cruise the uh, fucking Wikipedia real quick. Alien, Gladiator, Martian. All right. But you know what? I'm kind of mad at him recently. Did you see uh, or hear about The Last Duel, the movie that came out last year? Matt Damon. Uh, oh, um, yeah. Adam Driver was in that too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't see it, but I heard I heard about it. Yeah. And did you see it? I did see it. I did. Okay. Uh, Lauren was out of town. I was just looking for something to do. Went to see it. Um, it's a pretty horrific movie about like centering around the, the rape of a noble woman or I, I don't know, but he was like, Ridley Scott did some fucking press tour where he was like, Oh, no one wants to see my movie because of cancel culture or something. Just like some fucking idiotic ass take. It's like, oh. dude, maybe we just don't want to see like, I don't fucking know. Maybe we just don't, I don't know about care about your stupid movie. Yeah, maybe we don't care about your stupid fucking movie. It was it, it was pretty good. I I probably won't ever watch it again. Uh-huh. Um Yeah. I don't know. But Alien is awesome. Yeah. That dude coming out of his stomach. So nasty. <laughs> so so nasty. Uh, it's... also oh, never mind. Never mind. I don't want to get 
in the weeds about this. Okay. You know, well, never mind. Well, actually, listen, Nick. I'm listening. You know, um, about the leaked like SCOTUS document about how they're about to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yes. Um, well, someone on Twitter was like, speaking about the movie Alien, was like, literally the scariest thing the men who wrote this movie could imagine was something inhabiting your body and like forcing its way out of you. <laughs> and like, <laughs> no. Yeah. That was the scariest thing that they could imagine an alien doing to you. And, and here we are about here, to overturn. Here we are. Yeah. Anyways, that, that's all I was going to say. <sighs> what you got? Give me something. I'm all done until I have one more, but I'm going to save it. Okay. Okay. Sick. All right. So I'm going to just, I'm going to bang some of these out. Um, Cause I think I said like 20 plus 20 or so things. Okay. But they were grouped. Strangely. We're like, yeah, we're doing like, like 40 plus here. Okay. All right. So, we got next thing I wrote the record, um, Sunny Side Up with Dizzy Gillespie, um, Sunny Stid, and Sunny Rollins. So Great. fucking good. So, so good. good. First of all, these these three guys are like just un- unreal on their instruments, and um, they do a burn and take of the Eternal Triangle, um, which is just like a super like an insanely fast uh, rhythm changes. I think with like the bridge has like. I don't think it's the the bridge is different, but but it's basically just like a like a just thirty two bar burner. Um, they do a great, obviously a great take of um, on the sunny side of the street where Dizzy Gillespie sings at the end, and it's so, so awesome. good, so awesome, so amazing. <laughs> um, and then I think they do a tune, a really slow blues called After Hours, and then there's another one. I think it's called I Know That You Know, which is the last tune. Um, yeah, and it's. It's just a great album. There's only four tracks on it, but it's like just just swinging bop. It's awesome. To me, it's funny that Sonny Stitt is the saxophone on it, is the alto saxophonist on it, because like Dizzy, one of the most famous trumpet players of all time. Sonny Rollins, one of the most famous trumpet player or tenors players of all time. But Sonny Stitt seems to me like one of the most overlooked and underrated um, alto saxophonists ever. Yeah. Like that dude fucking rocks so hard and it really does. I, I never hear him like talked about or people like listing him as an inspiration, but he's one of the best there ever was. No. Actually, I'm pretty sure he plays tenor on this record, but he was, yeah, you're right. He was mainly an alto person, but I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure it's two tenors and trumpet, which is really, okay. Un- well, maybe that really was unusual, his fucking fault, but just play the instrument you normally play. Why are you going to fucking play tenor on a record with Sonny Rollins? Okay. So actually I think, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this right, but I, I I'm pretty sure at some point he somebody made a comment about how like he he sounds just like Charlie Parker on alto, and he's just like, well, I can't help what I sound like. I just I sound I am who I am. Like I sound like who I sound like. You know, um, I think the person mm-hmm. who said that to him meant it as a critique. But um, at some point he started playing tenor to like kind of change his I, I change the identity that he's not just like a Charlie Parker like copy or a clone or something. So mm-hmm. so he played both. He kind of switched back and forth between alto and tenor. And he also is a unique person because he ne- he didn't have like one group that he played with a lot. Like, you know, yeah, like, right. Like Miles, Miles played with like, you know, like Coltrane and Red Garland and Philly Joe Jones. Like 
he he was always on tour, always playing with different people. You know, like never he never had a band that he played with. So it's he's kind of like uh, he was just all over the place. I think, but he's great. That's great also player. a really interesting difference between classical music and jazz music because if like let's say for instance a classical music a classical musician was trying to play jazz and someone told them they sounded just like charlie parker that would be taken as a compliment right (laughs) yeah yeah but in jazz it's like really important to have like an individual sound and you can hear that like i mean i don't know like say the glasnov saxophone concerto or something or like any like standard concert work for a saxophone, maybe you can answer this, Nick. Like if the recordings sound pretty similar, like more similar than not similar or something, but like in in jazz, like you sh- should, I think, be able to tell the difference between the saxophonist you're listening to based, in, based on the sound that's coming out of the horn, right? Yeah, yeah. I. But in, I, in classical music, it's like the the more heterogeneous the sound like you know yeah the the less it offends or the less it sounds different the better but yeah i agree with that i think there's more room there's just a wider range that you can you can get i think sometimes though i do listen to a piece like sometimes i'll listen to like any random take of like the glasnov concerto and it's like it could be any saxophonist i have no idea but other other players are are very distinct and maybe it's just because i've spent more time listening to them or you know like i feel like i i really can tell if it's creviston versus like um i don't know like just some other like a like a french like like claude long or something like that a french saxophonist or something like there no. maybe it's because I know his playing so well and I, I can ident- I identify when I hear it, but, but in jazz, surely there is more room for variety and tone. But not, not only room for it, but it's encouraged and expected. Yeah. 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 You don't want to just, yeah. you don't want to sound just like John Coltrane. You don't want to sound just like no. Michael Brecker, even though those players are amazing and you know, you know <laughs> it's great to play like them, but you want to have your own thing going on. Yeah. Okay, next. All right, next I wrote down the soundtrack the soundtrack to Skyrim, which is a really epic uh, um, open world RPG from like 2011 that I spent a ton of time playing in like like 2013 or 14. I remember one time it snowed a ton in Virginia in like 2014 and I was off from school for like almost a whole week and I was fucking I was deep into Skyrim <laughs> and I was just fucking leveling up my fucking Dragonborn character so hard. Oh man, it was so cool. The, but what uh, system did you play it on? I think that was that was on PlayStation three or four. I think because they have it on Switch now. Oh really? Would you recommend it? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I mean, at this point, it's old. Like, there's plenty of other like really awesome open world games. But I'm sure, like, I, I think it's a new it's a new Skyrim though. Oh cool. Yeah, I would I would I would try it. It's super fun. Hmm. But you the music like, is good. The music is so good. Yeah, it's like, um, it's such a big map. And so what I think what it does well is that it's subtle. And so when you're traversing parts of the map, like things kind of change, but you don't even really notice it's changing. Um, I think video game music works the best when it's just like, it's like concert music, but on a quantum level, because anything can happen as, you, as you're the player, right? You can do any number yeah. of things, any number of times. And so the, the, like the soundtrack reacts to what you're playing and wh- how, or how you're playing rather. 
um and mm. uh it's it's really fun but the music's awesome all right next next up Wait, hold on a sec oh go ahead <laughs> did you open your second beer yet no i have almost done with my first one. Oh my god finish it okay okay <laughs> jesus i'm done with the whole 40 I need another beer, in fact. Okay. It was so nasty. Sorry, bro. Listeners, this is not an ad for Old English. <laughs> I would not recommend it. All right. Um, um, hey. What's up? Oh, that was good. Um, okay, so the next thing... Just get, well, oh. just keep people occupied for a sec. Okay. <laughs> Do okay. some stand up. I'll be right back. Sure. I'm not going to cut this, so you better fill the fill the stuff. All right, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk about something. Yes. So, uh, let's see. Oh. Um Yeah. Uh the other day, um I was um, I was at the grocery store and didn't know what I wanted, you know, was just looking around, trying to find something. Um, ended up going with the uh, the dark chocolate uh, one of those uh, dark chocolate Milanos. Really good. My favorite cookie, my favorite cookie. Um, Let's see. A close second would be. Uh, let's see. Um, us. Oh. Um, thin mints. I like thin mints, but I like them in the freezer. You know the Girl Scout cookies. Um, let's see what else. Number three cookie. Number three. Um, uh, We go go with the Oreo, pretty classic, pretty standard. Um, I'm not, I you know, I am not into the Oreo flavors. Uh, Oreo flavors, uh, you know, I I don't know. To me, I just just keep it standard, keep it the standard Oreo. I don't know. That's just my take. I know maybe that's a hot take. Maybe people like the uh, flavors, but uh, not me. You know. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, oh yeah, I'm I'm rewatching um, I'm rewatching the Marvel movies because I'm listening to um, the podcast Newcomers uh, with Nicole Byers and Lauren Lapkus, and um, they just they watch a Marvel movie that they've never seen before, and they they compl- they don't have no idea what's going on with the Marvel universe. So it's it's pretty funny because they they don't really understand anything, and so and they hate every single movie. So and it's it's pretty funny to hear their take on it. So, um, yeah, I'm watching the Marvel movies. Um, I'm ju- I just watched Spider-Man Homecoming, which I had never seen before. So, so good. I loved it. I loved that Spider-Man was like depicted as like a teenager. Really awesome. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that um, the next one is Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, like the other Spider-Man movies, 
I feel like the one with Tobey Maguire, like he just looks too old. You know, Spider-Man is supposed to be like a kid. So it's really cool that they depict that, you know. Um, he feels like he feels like a high school kid. Um, let's see. Yeah. Doctor Strange, we watched before Spider-Man. It wasn't, it wasn't crazy about Doctor Strange, to be honest. But yeah. Anyway. Hello? Hey, what's up? Hey, uh, Franklin's here. Oh, Franklin. What's up, buddy? Come on on the, come on on the show. I'm going to try to get him on the show. I just got to show him this fucking toy that's a cauliflower that he hates. And then he'll okay. uh, he'll bark at it. Sure. Well, actually, um, Lauren, we, we just got his DNA results. But I don't know yet. No, we don't know yet. So we're she's going to read them on the show. Oh, oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's exciting. You must be excited to know. I'm really excited. Who knows what this motherfucker is? Um, yeah. I don't know. What is he? I don't know. Krypton Keller. All right. Um, how many things you got left? Um, one, two, uh, just two. Okay, cool. Let's have the next one. All right. Next thing that I wrote down is um, playing low A on the Barry Sax really loud. Wow. Really yeah. niche. Yeah. Super sick. It's like really fun to play that note. Um, um yeah, I think that's going to be my next purchase is getting a Barry Sax. Cool. One more quick break. Come sure. back on once more. Okay. Sick. Franklin's DNA results back. Yay, Franklin. You want to find out what he is? Yes. I want to find out too. I, I don't fucking know. Here to join us. Hi. <laughs> Hi. What's up, Lauren? You said your name. Sorry. Are you not allowed to say your name on a podcast? You can just bleep it. Or say like redacted. Everyone knows we who could- you are anyways. We have two listeners. They're Ace and Natasha. They Lauren know who Redacted you are. Thaw. Lauren um, Redacted Thaw. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Ready. Drum roll. Franklin is 12.5% bloodhound. Yes, I knew it. His nose is to the fucking ground all the time. Awesome. Love it. Okay. 12.5% boxer. Okay, I kind of see that in the face a little bit. 12.5% Great Pyrenees. Yeah, hell yeah. Cool. 12.5% <laughs> Mountain Dogs, Guard Dogs, Herding Dogs of various kinds. Okay. And then 50% American Staffordshire Terrier. Wow. And that's our man. No Great Dane. No Great Dane, but wow. Great Pyrenees is a giant breed. Wow. This is, this is fantastic. It's really good news, Nick. Thank you. Uh, staffies are hardworking and loyal dogs that are typically uh, anywhere from 40 to 68 pounds. They're hardworking, intelligent, and stoic. Very yeah. loyal to family and oh. usually good with kids. Yes. Uh, 
they like dog sports like agility and competitive obedience um originally originally bred for guarding people and property they need firm and dedicated training oh so he's like the cop of dogs the cop wow. of dogs <laughs> hey and yeah sorry if you can hear that noise nick or or listener the bloodhound thing that totally makes it the bloodhound thing is so accurate oh my god and the great pyrenees thing is fucking insane which is probably where that's why we all think that he's like a giant breed yeah wow he's a mess um so so in the mountain dogs group you have noofs leon burgers saint bernard's and bernie's mountain dog so that's so cool like he is probably about 25 percent giant breed of various kinds and there is likely some great dane somewhere in there okay all right um see his family tree and then there's a bunch of things about his health. Okay. He has no freaky disease mutations. Oh. <laughs> He's very healthy. Hell yeah, buddy. There are That's certain awesome. DNA traits. Well, what about markers. the fucking thing on his butthole? Okay, so his ideal weight is 40 to 70 pounds. He's already 41 pounds at five months old. Okay. He's a big boy. Wow. That was great. Yeah. Can we feel his nerves spine and pelvic bones very easily? Oh, that's, that's really insane. exciting. You should just keep drinking it, but that was really funny. <laughs> Franklin just drank a bunch of my gin and LaCroix. <laughs> I'm not going to keep drinking it. But you should make it a new one. Yeah, I'm going to make myself a new one. Okay, keep taking. Yeah, now I'm depressed. What? Don't be depressed. I put so much gin in my butt. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll put that. more gin. Okay, bye. Leave all of that. Just say. I'm not leaving any of it. Say what his breed was. Not leaving shit. We don't believe shit now. on this show. Except for Dave Blumenthal's name. I have a more sensitive situation. Yeah, we didn't say your last name. We have two listeners. Um. Our, our, frankly, Nick, our numbers aren't doing great. Oh, bummer. Our well, last episode had maybe 15 listens. That's okay. I mean, you know, I bet those 15 listens were like people who really were passionate about what we were saying. So, yeah, I hope so. Okay, you got one left. I have one left. Okay, <laughs> let's hear it, bud. Actually, I'll go first. Okay. This song is a song by Schubert. It's a song that changed the entire trajectory of my life. Nick, you know me. When we were in high school, I played in punk rock bands. I didn't give a shit about classical music. I just went to music school because I had no I didn't know what else to do. I thought it would just be like summer music camp. No, I didn't know what the fuck. Um, it was like that. I, <clears throat> yeah, it kind of was. It was like that the whole time. <laughs> but <clears throat> I didn't think I had any other interests or skill sets besides music. So I went to school for music. But it wasn't until I heard the song by Schubert from the song Cycle D. Schoen and Müllerin called mm-hmm. Der Neugierige oh. that I really like fell in love with classical music. This is a good one. Because at the time, I was really in love with a German exchange student who did not 
love me back. And in this song, this guy is asking the same question. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> he gets it. Oh, my God. Classical music can actually relate to my life. So that that this single song changed the whole trajectory of my life. And I remember I was on a um, a trip with the choir. I was in the hotel room and I was listening to it because I was playing it with <clears throat> um, Nick Manzella. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, of course. Um, but he was singing it. I was his pianist. I was listening to it. And then I was like, oh my God, this shit rocks so hard. That's amazing, dude. That, I, and that's I, that. No, I know, actually, I know we... Um... We've talked about this before because I'm pretty sure you told the same story on the Schubert episode, and I remember it. Shit. I, no, but that's okay. That's okay. I just wanted to say because now I know this piece now because I listened to it um, after the episode because I don't think I was as familiar with it, but I was like, I was like, yeah, this is. I mean that that piece is so good. It's so good. It's just yeah. so beautiful and so <clears throat> like pretty platonically Schubert. Like it's it's kind of like the ideal Schubert song. It is it, it in in music it expresses the meaning of the text, but yeah. it's also right like beautiful and sad and I don't know. It's just so good. So good. Shit. That's that. That's that. All right. I'll drink to that. <clears throat> All right, so my last thing is a record label called Bad Time Records, Whoa. and they wow. put they put out the fucking best ska music right now. Everything, all of the all of the best ska music that's coming out is on this label. Um, everything from like uh, Ska to Network, aka Jer, aka Jeremy Hunter, um, they're awesome. They put out so much amazing music. Um, they're also in We Are the Union, Kill Lincoln. Um, who else is on this label? Bad Operation, Cat Bite, Best of the Worst, Gray Jesus Matter. Christ. There are all these great ska bands who are just putting out this amazing music right now. It's so good. Like any anything you listen to on this this record label is going to be like just A plus. They're really really fun records. Um, and I think probably my top three favorite records right now from that are that are on this label are the self titled Bad Operation album, um, Ordinary Life by We Are the Union, and um, probably can't complain by Kill Lincoln. Those those three are really awesome. Can't go wrong. So is this is this like the fifth wave of ska? Yeah, I think they. I think the people on this on this record or record label, like the a lot of the artists, call it new tone. Because huh. it's like like a, a take on the two tone movement. Yeah, because um, that's a really cool name. Yeah, so they that's what that's kind of their vibe, and it's more about like like ska. You can. <laughs> You can write a Scott song about anything. It can be about something as serious as like racial injustice or as silly as like pizza and beers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's a wide range of stuff that ska music is about. Um, but like it's its origins are are more like about like uh racial injustices that were happening in like like England during the two-tone movement. Like hmm. and so I think that's like like if you look if you know about the specials, like they capture that a lot in their music and so that's what the, a lot of the artists on this label write about and it's really it's a really good they just put out so many good records so i recommend cool. it all right well that was uh 40 or 40 plus things 
Yeah, baby. I drink a 40. And I drink 48. Well, almost. And now, um, you got anything else? Oh, actually, I did have a question. I wanted yes. to ask, what's the most like hyphenated subgenre of music you can conceivably say you listen to? <laughs> oh, oh, cool question. I don't know. Um, uh, let me let me think about it. Yeah, sure. For instance, mine is probably like regularly I listen to these albums by these like Italian people that just play communist songs. So like mine would be like, um, yeah, like Italian communist songs would be like my most niche sort of hyphenated genre. Okay. What's yours? Um, let's see. Okay. So I just mentioned, I guess I'm just thinking about it. I'm just, I just mentioned Bad Time Records. There's a band called Gray Matter and I'm pretty sure they describe themselves as, um, post indie hardcore ska punk. Wow. Post five so yeah it's pretty good it's pretty good and they're but, they're really capturing then, all that too they capture all of it yeah it's really it's really wild are there any other bands that play post indie hardcore ska punk mm, probably yeah you could argue you could argue all kinds of things yeah you could argue um that uh, this band from new jersey called the best of the worst they also kind of do the same thing um you could argue folly did that remember folly yeah yeah um or the fad the fad kind of did that too they weren't as much like indie they were just kind of like but they're more hardcore they were definitely hardcore but they did they did have like a lot of scott's scott elements in there too but oh yeah that the singer from that from that band the the fad what's his name jimmy doyle he was the one who was behind that um irish dream cover oh remember? shit really yeah, yeah. <laughs> Him and a bunch of other guys, I think, from like the New York area. But yeah, that's fine. wow, cool. That's pretty. That's like very niche. That's that. <laughs> that's pretty niche. Uh wow. We did it. Fucking did it. You did it. All right. Well, happy. Um summer vacation nick when does your semester end uh, a few weeks i got a few weeks actually the movers are moving our stuff out of here before my school year even ends so because we have we like closed on our house or whatever so i have to like stay at a friend's house for the last few few days or get a hotel what or the fuck wow i mean whatever you're gonna be homeless I'm, i don't mind honestly you should try it out I'm honestly i might as well try it out i should get used to it really um yeah we're all gonna be homeless eventually. Yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. I mean, society's collapsing. Society's gonna collapse. Two, we're gonna four we're, years. There's gonna be like little. We're gonna live in like a little like a uh, commune in like an airport or something like that, or like a train station. You know. Hey, I mean? that would be great. Thank you. Yeah. 
That'd be, that'd be ideal if I made it. I welcome there. it. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even make it there. Probably, I would be the first to get eaten by a zombie or something. Yeah. I can't wait to die, in um. In some sort of like societal upheav- up upheaval, it's gonna. I'll be one of the the uh, casualties. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Why do <laughs> I it. care? Sign me up. <laughs> Uh, okay nick all right max it's really good to see you it's been a while good to see you buddy and um go fuck yourself go fuck yourself bro have fun uh, have fun have fun with franklin tell franklin i say hi okay i will bye give him a big hug bye